Hi, this is Michelangelo Badio, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another weekly dose of Focus on Metal. So from the uh, ID that starts off the show, you might be able to figure out that our guest this week is, once again, Michael Angelo Badio. We've had Michael on the show a couple of times, and this time he is on to help promote his brand new release coming over on Rat Pack Records. This week, it is called More Machine Than Man, and it's another 13 tracks of awesome MAB material. And, of course, being from Rat Pack, that means there's some awesome bundles available. So there is still available the hand-autographed deluxe CD bundle. So you're going to get the CD, some stickers, and uh, some other good stuff in there, signature guitar pick, and a limited edition insert. They also have the limited edition vinyl bundle as well. They still have some of those available, and uh, you can get those autographed as well. And, uh, the of course, the test pressing, that is out of stock. And they also have the ultimate fan bundle, which is the vinyl. It's the CD. It's all kinds of stuff. Also, uh, even a... Uh, a jam tracks bundle for guitarist as well. So good stuff there as usual from our buddies over at Rat Pack Records. If you want to check that out, then you want to go to ratpackrecordsamerica.com slash Michael Angelo Badio. And Rat Pack is R-A-T-P-A-K. But before we get into our convo with uh, Michael, we're going to do something uh, we haven't done for, oh, I mean, probably a month and a half, two months. You got it. Track of the week. Can you believe it? We're actually going to do a track of the week this week. And uh, pretty excited about this one. Back in uh, 2017, I had actually talked to the drummer of this band as this band reformed again from... Uh, the Ashes and being away from the scene for years and put out a great album in a transition state. And uh, as he promised to me in that interview, was going to continue to write, was really psyched about all these guys that were in the band now and providing energy. So here we are again, 2020. And last month, Oz released their brand new one entitled Forced Commandments. And uh, pretty cool, pretty cool album overall. You've got your basic, uh, you know, eight tracks of pretty great metal. Some stuff with some bass intros, some stuff with some uh, screaming guitar intros in there. If you get the deluxe version, there's also three bonus tracks on there as well. So good stuff, good solid release from Oz in this new one, Forced Commandment. So uh, definitely go and check this one out. Put it into your metal collection. And what I'm going to play for you this week is a little track entitled Switchblade Alley. Switchblade Alley. 
There you go, a track from the new one from Oz, Switchblade Alley. And uh, hopefully Mark Roughneck, the uh, the drummer I talked to last time, will be out and about doing promo for this one as well. Would love to talk to him again. And, uh, you know, just uh, two old dudes reminiscing about uh, about good metal. So onward as we uh, go into our interview with this week's guest, Michael Angelo Badio. Guy's been around for a long time. Started off in his native Chicago area with the band Holland. And then, of course, everybody knows him from Nitro. Uh, I can remember, uh, you know, when playing the clubs in Boston and there was another band that we work with a lot. And the guitarist for that band that was phenomenal was, uh, for whatever reason, was really good friends with Jim Gillette. And I can just remember being in the club one night, finding out Jim was there. And I didn't care about that. I was trying to find out whether or not Michael was there or not. I wanted to shoot the shit with him. But since 1993, Michael has been a solo artist, putting all kinds of things out. And this week is uh, no exception, as he's got a brand new release coming out on Rat Pack Records, entitled, as I said before, More Machine Than Man. So Richie was able to sit down with Michael and have a good chat about guitars, about, you know, online music lessons, all kinds of stuff. And then also, thrown in there amazingly, was some discussion about the brand new album. So I'm going to turn it over to Richie as he talks with guitarist extraordinaire, the man who they say his hands have no shadow. Shadows, Michael Angelo Badio. Hey, Michael, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm all right. So, uh, where are you based? Uh, I'm based uh, in Chicago. It's my hometown. Okay. So, how's quarantine suiting you? Well, you know, like a lot of musicians, it's the only thing that's really different right now is I can't go to restaurants and things. But you know, when I'm off the road, I you know I live alone. You know, I've got a house and all that, so I'm pretty much by myself. I'm kind of enjoying it in a weird way. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's no sports to watch. What's that? No. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah, I know the baseball season, even uh, basketball. They're talking about like uh, you know, in Chicago is a really big sports town, so. Who knows? I mm. mean, yeah, I was a big uh, Bulls fan, especially in the Jordan era and all that. You know, I mean, the White Sox won, the Cubs won, uh, you know, so it's all, they always have a team that does well, you know, the Blackhawks, so nothing right now. Mm-hmm. So I always ask the guitar players, Michael, this question in the beginning, and I don't think I've sure. asked you before, how many guitars do you have in your house? Right now, it's over 170. Man's got to know his limitations. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I said over is because I, I, you know, I, I, I've been collecting guitars for a long time, and and in my living room, I've got uh, about, I'd say about, because I keep adding, but it's about 93 on display. And then I'm with a new company called Sawtooth, who's really amazing. And I'm doing uh, like an acoustic uh, online show this week. So they sent me six guitars and a seventh one is coming, acoustic. So it's roughly 172, somewhere around there. Okay. When, When you say you're a collector, is there any particular model that you collect more than others? No. Uh, I, I go with, uh, I go with what I, I like, like, I, I, I don't know, you know, every guitar to me has a story to it, but I have, uh, um, for example, I have the only Gibson double guitar on planet earth. And I mean, it was built by Wayne Charvel, the man from Charvel. It has the old Orville Gibson logos on it, it was built in Nashville, um, it was built by Wayne Charvel and finished in Nashville. And so that, I mean, it's really, it's only one of a kind on the planet. I've got my Gibson 
two of the four quad, uh, you know, the quad guitar I had made during the Nitro days. Mm-hmm. So I, but I, I was friends with like Wayne Charvel, the man Charvel, and Grover Jackson, the guy from Jackson. So I've got I've got handmade Charvels, handmade Jacksons. You know, I've got one Ibanez uh, RG50, and then a lot of them Fenders. Um, uh, I've got uh, about uh, let's see, one, two. I don't know. It, you know, I've got old Mustangs, old ja- uh, jazz masters. I've got a lot of Dean guitars that were USA made and, and prototypes of my signatures. And then I just collect, you know, eclectic things after that. Mm. <laughs> Whatever I like. <laughs> My- Michael, did you, ever, with all those guitars, did you ever find one that you thought you might have gotten rid of? Well, it's funny you ask that. Uh, when I, Grover Jackson was, was with Washburn uh, Guitars for a couple of years now. I lived in L.A. for, for many years, and I knew Grover uh, because uh, he was very good friends with the manager of the band. I was in Nitro at the time. So anyway, when I left Washburn, the owner of the, of the company had put basically the control into a second-in-command that, that was just really not cool. And so I ended up selling one of my Washburn. I traded it in at a local music store, and I saw it hanging on the wall. And I got so distressed at seeing my former guitar on the wall, I bought my own guitar back. <laughs> so <laughs> the collection. <laughs> nice. So, but but you know, I, I mean, knock on wood. I, I'm not saying I'm so wealthy, but I don't need to sell them. And I and I don't like to sell guitars I've been given anyway. But but I like all these guitars. I'm looking at them right now. You know the the ones in my living room. Mm. Michael, so, do you still have the guitar, the first guitar you bought with your own money? No, okay. no. But but uh, I really don't. But I tell you what I did do. I've been trying to reacquire those guitars. For example, when I was a little boy, I played a Fender Mustang, and it was a red one with an Ampeg Gemini One amp and a pedal called a Fender Fuzz Face that had a fuzz and a wah built in in a volume pedal. And so I reacquired those three items. And so I have two Gemini One amps, one mint condition 68. Uh, mine was a 66. And then I bought the fuzz wah uh, in, in uh, New York. I was playing at the Iridium with that guy Carmine Apice, uh-huh. uh, the famous drummer. And I was, we were playing two shows out there. And I walk into a music store, and there's my, the pedal I used when I was 10 years old. So I try to, I'm trying to reacquire the gear that I had when I was a kid and I'm having a hard time on a couple of guitars. Mm. I, so I, one, one I can't find at all. I find versions of it, but, but I like it. I love guitars, obviously. Mm. Michael, have you ever stumbled across something you've been searching for completely by accident when you weren't even looking for it? Yes. That, the Fender Fuzz Face pedal, it's this really big steel Fender pedal. And on the right side, you hit a foot switch, it says wah. The left side, it says fuzz. That's why they called it a fuzz wah. And I, I 
had I got rid of it, you know, I was I was in high school. I, I had it from like the age maybe of uh, twelve years old to about fourteen. And like I said, I walk in this music store in New York City. It's there used. And the guy tells me, he goes, you know, he knew who I was. He goes, you know, Michael. He goes, I was wondering who this pedal was going to go to. He goes, I, you know, he goes, this has been here, and he goes, you know, it's not a well-known pedal. And he, and so he, he wasn't surprised. But I also two years ago picked up a '79. Uh, Strat that's exactly like the 79 Strat I had. So yeah, I run into stuff by accident. I see it, like I'm not looking all of a sudden, oh my God, there's a piece I want. You know, I've been looking for, not I want, but I, I've been looking for. Mm. With all those guitars, have you ever had any other musicians hit you up and say, look, any chance you can sell me this one? Well, I've had, I've had, um, it seems with my double guitars, I'm having a hard time hanging on to them. And, you know, I, I used to be, uh, an endorsee of Dean, but the owner died three years ago and I'm not with that company. I don't even really have any affiliation. I don't even really know what they're doing now. It's a, such a different company. But when Elliot was alive, I had an offer to sell one of my double guitars and it was for really good money. And it was to a museum in Beijing, China. Uh, and so I talked to him. I said, Elliot, you know, I've got other double guitars that I can use that represent the brand. I said, these guys want to buy this one. I said, they're offering me really good money for it. And I said, and I told him, I said, you know, I know that it costs you, you know, us a lot to make it. I said, what do you think? And I said, maybe, you know, if you're interested, you know, if you're interested, we could split the cost. And he told me, he goes, Mike, he goes, I'm, he goes, you know what? He goes, I'm really glad you asked me about this. He goes, so many people, you know, artists over the years that he's given guitars to, you know, and name people, not so many, but they get free guitars and, and you see them on eBay. And he said, he goes, you know what, Mike? He goes, you've earned it. He goes, it's your guitar. He goes, thanks for telling me. And that's it. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, so with all the guitars in your house, Michael, what's the longest you've gone without playing? Well, I had... Uh, uh, situation a couple years ago with, uh, I had unfortunately the owner of Dean died, uh, a really close son. He was like a family member to me and I was really, you know, I was loyal to him and I didn't realize this. So after he died, it was, it was him and the brand, not the brand, you know, it was him because the way he ran it, um, he could have ran anything and, and I just really liked him. Uh, but um, then my mother and my sister died and my mom and my dad's been gone for a long time. So I had all these major people in my life die. So the longest I've ever gone was <clears throat> when that happened. I probably didn't play other than a few shows for about six months. That's pretty crazy. I mean, I played, I had shows to do, but I didn't have, I didn't book up the schedule very much, but that was about it. Then, then the light switch went on. And I said, back to shred mode. <laughs> and, and I haven't stopped. <laughs> M Michael, tell me about picking up the guitar, having not played for, for a while. Um, the, the dexterity in your fingers, as you get older now, can you feel your body aging when it comes to actually playing the guitar? Well, I, you know, I've said this a lot because I'm, a, I'm an instructor as well. And I, uh, my programs have stood the test of time. And, and, this is, and this is how I can answer your question. You know, I have a degree in music, a BA in music theory and composition. And I study classical piano. And my programs on guitar, because the electric guitar is the newest 
major instrument on the world. Uh, you know, it's the most popular instrument, guitar as a whole, but um, I develop programs based on my classical piano training, and, and it works. I've never been injured. Uh, I've never had any kind of hand problem whatsoever, and I'm still as fast as ever. And, and I think I'm, I'm a better guitarist now because... I've had a lifetime of experience that goes into the playing. But having said that, I noticed when I was younger, I never had to warm up. I could pick up a guitar and just rip. As I've gotten older, I've, there, there's a thing they, they equate it to sports. You have to adjust your game. So I've adjusted my game. I have warm-up exercises that I always do. And it maybe takes me about... 15 minutes, so you know, if my hands, I don't wake up stiff, I don't have arthritis or anything, but I can't just pick up a guitar and go into light speed like I used to. So I warm up, but then all of a sudden, once the engine's warmed up, then I can play. So that's oh. a great question. Have you ever played a show in really cold weather where you thought it might affect your playing? So many times, it's not even funny. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm from Chicago, so we're, yeah. I mean, this is a, a cold climate. I mean, in in Celsius, I literally it would be minus thirty sometimes in the w- winter. You know, minus seventy Fahrenheit, and, and uh, I, I even in June here, I have played outdoor concerts in the Chicago area in June, where it was the weather was almost freezing at almost freezing temperatures, and, and uh, so I've played it plenty of times, but. You know, so what? Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, you do what you have to do. But I, it's, it, I don't like it, but it's never been, you know, I mean, obviously, if it gets below freezing, then, then we have a problem. But I, probably, um, are, do you know Celsius or Fahrenheit better? Um, both. I'm from Ireland. It's Celsius. And over here, it's Fahrenheit. Yeah. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I could, t- I wasn't sure exactly, but I thought maybe. Um, yeah. So it would be. Anything like above, like below, like say 32 degrees, you know, freezing in Fahrenheit. I played it about 40 degrees. That's the coldest I've ever played, and I've done it multiple times. Mm. You see, the reason I'm asking you that, Michael, is you can warm up, and you normally warm up in a warmer room, maybe indoors, and then you just go outdoors and you have to play in that sort of weather. That has to affect you. Yeah, it does. But, you know, too, it depends. But, you know, when you factor in lights, and you also factor in adrenaline and moving around, um, it doesn't hit me that much. And so, you're, you know, it's not like an athlete where, uh, where, you know, I'm using large muscle groups. I'm using my fingers. So now, granted, they get really cold, but I, I've, I haven't found that much of a, an issue with it. Mm. Now, I don't play at all, but can the cold weather affect the, the strings and, and the guitar sound? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You have to... Uh, you know, get your instrument acclimated uh, towards whatever, uh, you know, like environment it is. Uh, a lot of times when it's like that, I, I'll probably, I'll have like uh, one guitar that I practice backstage and I have the other guitars, including my double, already on the stage so that they're used to the uh, to the way the, the temperature and the barometric pressure and all that is. Mm-hmm. Now, Michael, one of the things in the press release it says is, you know, the shredding and the fastest guitar player on the planet. How do you feel about being the term shred? Because I've spoken to a lot of guitar players and they don't really like it. They feel that it limits limits their playing, that they're just judged on how fast they play. 
Well, let me see. Here's where my degree comes in. What do you? What is your perception of the term virtuoso? If somebody call, says, you know, this is a virtuoso player. You're asking me. Um, someone yeah. who, can, who can play any style. Okay, so it means really a very positive thing, right? Yeah. Okay, well, guess what? In, 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 uh, in the history of music, a virtuoso was a derogatory term. See, uh, I, have, um, I studied this in school. See, throughout history, the haves and the have-nots have always clashed. And so if, I, if this was the year 1820, and I referred, and you referred to me as a virtuoso, it was an insult. Because all it said is that you're technically proficient on your instrument. That's it. But it also meant you lacked feeling. Oh, wow. Sort of similar to like what critics did with the word shred. And so musicians throughout time have had to deal with the same thing. Different word, uh, same idea. So here's what I think about shred. I've had a 30-plus year career. I didn't call myself a shredder. I never labeled myself the fastest guitarist. People have given me this label. I never once in my life said, I want to be the fastest. You know, that's not in my job description. I just want to be as fast as I need to, to, to play what I hear. But... When when people assigned the word shredder, I, I immediately knew what was going on because I studied this. This is the age-old thing, the critics criticizing the haves. And, and so, you know, the prognosticators, you know, I call them negative Internet pundits now. Um, it's the same thing, just different generation, different time. So when... When I was, I was actually voted like the number one shredder and number one fastest. And I know Steve Vai doesn't like that term. A lot of people don't. You know, I said, you know, Franz Liszt was labeled a virtuoso. It was an insult. Um, and, and he's remembered more than a century. So I said, you know, I'm lumped in a category of a lot of other famous musicians. So bring it on, baby. <laughs> mm. Michael, I think people just want to pigeonhole players. I think so. Yeah. Yes. And mm-hmm. I, I, it, it's the same with bands and, you know, they try to put the bands in genres. Um, it's just uh, it's just comfortable for them to do that. Yeah. And, and you know what I do, too, in my music? I have a song called No Boundaries. You know, it's a really famous instrumental song. And I get these, see, again, you get these critics. Oh, he can't write a song. Well, let's see. I wrote a really famous instrumental song. It's mine. Wow. Yeah, we don't have that one. And then, and then it starts off the first 45 seconds is extremely slow. Oh, wow, he doesn't play fast. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> All right. So I get it. You know, I, I wrote a famous song. And, but I'm not a songwriter, and I, I wrote the first almost third of the song really slow, but all I do is play fast. Well, that's good. <laughs> mm. Michael, do you still play piano? Yes, I do, a lot. Have you ever written a song on piano, and then mm-hmm. you've play, you played it on guitar, or maybe the other way around? No, many times. Uh, there is a song on my first solo album. In fact, I'm playing it this Thursday called Peace. And one of the things when I studied music in school, they called it a tone poem. And it was uh, in the like middle to late 1800s where, where artists thought they, tr- they actually had an idea where you could depict, like, say, 
like a brook or a, a stream in a forest in music, where you could describe it musically, and they called it a tone poem. So my song, Peace, was a tone poem. I actually wrote it when I was uh, in England. I've been to the UK many times, and, and I've only been in Ireland once, so that's the first time I had a a proper pint of Guinness. <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> and uh, you know, I watched the way they poured. It was really great. Yeah. But, um, but I was in, I was in uh, England when I was, I was outside of London, and I wrote. I was with, uh, um, I was at a friend's house, and he was a distributor of all these, like PRS and Washburn and all this stuff. And and, it, and uh, his name is Gavin Mortimer, and uh, I was with Gavin at his facility. It was a big, huge warehouse, and they had a piano there with headphones. And I wrote the song "Peace" on piano, and then I later recorded it. Mm, mm. So what comes first when you're writing an instrumental song for you? Is it the riff first and then the solo, or can it be the other way around? It's, it's anyway. Um, there's no real set method. And, and this is another thing. You know, I, I don't mean, you know, having my education doesn't make me a better artist. It doesn't make me smarter or even more talented, but it gives me insights about how other people did this. And see... If I've learned anything over the years, there's no set way to write music. There's not. And uh, but I'll tell you what I do do. A lot of times I might start with a groove. I might get a feel for a beat, or I might have a melody. So it's to answer your question, it's kind of all of the above, you know. Because sometimes there's a melody in my head. Sometimes it's a chord progression. Sometimes it's just a beat. And and, uh, and then I, I work on it. And and we use you know music software now. You know digital recording, you know, DAW systems, the way composers in the past used notes. You know, they would write it in notation to remember it, and then they would could work on it later. They could cross out things. Same what we do today. We're just using modern technology. Mm. Have, have you ever woken up with, with a song? Like it's just written itself? Yeah, but I wish it was like yesterday, like McCartney. He said he did that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he, I, I saw that. He said that he, that's what he did. But he, you know, with scrambled eggs and all that. But yes, I have. And what I do is I, I do, uh, I use my iPhone and I record ideas. And so, because you think you, you, you remember it, but you don't. And, and so I always have my iPhone ready. Or, or if not, I, I'll turn it on. I, you know, I don't leave it on all the time at night, but, um, I, I definitely record the ideas and then I come back to it later. I had probably 150 or more ideas for this album alone. Wow. Um, that I, yeah, and I used a bunch of them. Mm. Michael, how, how do you come up with song titles for instrumentals with no lyrics? That's a good question. Uh, again, I get a feel for the song. I actually many times don't title them before I write before I write it because being that it's you know it that it's instrumental um you know you, I'll, I'll listen to it like for example my second solo album Planet Gemini it's all space themed songs and the reason is is once I started writing it that's what it started to remind me of so and I think, you know, that's with anything. Uh, I think even, oh, I'll, I'll bring back to McCartney because the Beatles are one of my favorite bands. Um, he started off with scrambled eggs and then it turned into yesterday. And, and I think that's kind of the way I do it too. Um, like even the new album, I, I listen to the songs and I get a feeling for what I want to try to do with it. Like, how does it feel to me? And then I come up with the title. Mm -hmm. Michael, what was the hardest song? 
for you to write on this because you often hear a musician will have he'll have it in his head the way he wants it to sound, but to actually get it on tape can be very difficult. Is there one song that stands out for you on this album? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a lot of them. I think I, I see this album started off to be vocals, and so uh, almost virtually every song on this new album started off as a vocal song. And so the, it's it's not the technical thing that made it so hard, but here's my thought process um, on this. The, the song, The Badlands, which we released the video to, that was the hardest song for me to finish. And it's because I kept thinking of it as a jam song. That's going to be so much fun to play live. The beat, it's just grooving. And I had, and there was a chorus to it that had vocals and I was like, how do I, you, you can't really do that with a guitar. You know, if a singer sings death metal or they're singing like Freddie Mercury, how do you do that? How do you do death metal vocals on a guitar? You know what I mean? What, what I do? And so, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, yeah. what do I do? And so I had to, uh, it took me a long time to come up with the parts to play guitar to, but I'll tell you what I so, but that was the hardest one just to conceptually get. But what I really liked about what I did on this new album, if you listen to my other solos, which I have a lot of, um, this playing is different. You know, people always talk about phrasing. Well, what is phrasing? It's just rhythm. You know, I, I, if, I, if I, I'll give you a perfect example. If I play it, sing a major scale backwards, like down, 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 down. Okay, that's a major scale sing, sung backwards. Okay, you know, from top to bottom. Well, what if I add rhythm to it? Down, 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 down. I just made joy to the world. I just added rhythm. So that's crazy. So what I tried to do on this new record is like I play really fast and stop and you know, there's a lot of little breaks in there that, that I try to incorporate that I don't normally do. I just wanted to mix it up. Hmm. But the Badlands is definitely the hardest one for me, not to play, but to, to figure out what I'm going to play on it. Hmm. Now, you, you said there that all the songs are written with a singer in mind. Did you have a singer and were you working on vocals? Well, uh, yeah, uh, but we never got that far. Um, it, you know, I had all these riffs written, and I, I you know, since the, the recording process is so much different now, you could do demos, and, and, and a lot of those tracks can be used for the final recording. Uh, but I, I, I demoed out of all these different songs, and then when my mom died, it's like enough already. You know, I mean, it's just too many, you know, I had three, they say three things come in threes and they did, you know, my sister, my younger sister, my mom and the owner of Dean, all people I was, you know, and with, you know, I was really close to. And so, uh, you know, that was, you know, so what happened is I, I kind of put everything on hold for about six months to get my head together. And then by that time, the people I was working with, everybody was, you know, doing different things. And, and then I realized that I, I don't want to use vocals. I want to make this instrumental. So that's kind of how it worked. Mm. Now, instrumental guitar music in general, wh where do you see that now in the marketplace? It's, it's not, probably not as popular as it was in the 80s. No, and, and but see, I have a, a, a unique niche uh, because I'm a, I'm a, really good public speaker and I've got a funny personality. If you've ever 
like if even just go online and listen to the way I teach, you know, because I'm not judgmental, I'm not political, I don't talk about religion, but I, I just have funny insights on things. And I've been doing, I've been a public speaker as well as a performer for a long time. So I incorporate that in my shows. So it's not just playing music, but it's talking like the stories behind it or, or the, it, it's really a, a great live show. And it's not a typical concert where, hello, everybody, we're going to rock you now. You know, I mean, it has, it's nothing like that. And, and uh, but I think there's a, you know, Gene Simmons said it best to me, he said that kiss was kiss before they had a record deal. And he referenced Madonna. He said, Madonna, was Madonna before anybody ever signed her. And he said, if you don't know who you are, no one will know who you are. And that's what I do. I know who I am. I'm not really interested in being a pop artist, you know, and I've done really well just by saying, okay, this is what I do. You either like it or you don't, but I do it the way I like it. <laughs> and that's, hmm. that's, that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. M- Michael, how were the nineties for you when all the bands were coming out and there were all the guitarists who were down tuning with no guitar solos. Was that a tough market for you to stay in? Nope. I, I, I toured more in the 90s than most people would ever tour in their entire life. And you know what I used to do? I used to do guitar seminars, and I, I developed a one-man show. And I, I would make a joke, and here's what i said: I would say, now I know the grunge era is in. I know that guitar solos are out. You know, since the lute for 400 years, they've had guitar solos, but... You know, I, and I would say, you know, you know, that, that, uh, um, you know, now it's not cool to do guitar solos. And I said, and let's say I was in England or, or Italy or Germany. I would say now, uh, I know that American guitar players are not playing guitar solos now. And I said, that is fine. I said, I don't care because I will play enough notes for all of us. And I will be representing the United States. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. And, you know, and one of my biggest areas was Seattle because I was like, screw these people. If, you know, if they think that it's cool to suck, let them, let them, you know, because, and the, and the thing is, you know, did I like grunge music? Yes. Did I like Kurt Cobain's music? Yes. Did I like him as a guitarist? No. There's a difference. Um, you know, I, did I, so I didn't, and, and not that I didn't like his rhythm guitar playing. I didn't like his lead playing because it was, I think he like almost purposely tried to play out of tune. And, and but it, see, it's the differentiation between an artist and music versus a technician and the technical facility. So, but man, I toured like an insane amount, an insane amount. Wow. That's, that's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. It's never lit up. Um, you know, I, but, but, you know, I have my own thing and, you know, I just try to be as good as I can at what I do. That's, that's my goal. Mm. I just got a couple of questions, Michael, before I leave you go. Sure. A lot of artists now, because they can't tour that, that, that their income stream from that is gone, that they're offering lessons on Skype. Um, mm-hmm. is that something that you have have done or something that you might, you might do in the future? Well, see, again, this, this coronavirus has actually played into my strengths. What are my strengths? Um, I can do a one man show. I'm a really good speaker and I have very well known, famous, uh, instructional programs. So I've been able to draw really big numbers online. My instructional programs have sold really well. And, and, uh, my, 
the things that other bands you know, relied on, which is touring, is something I've never re- just relied on. See, I, I'm not, it's not one, di- my income is not one dimensional, that it takes touring. So I've got other ways to make money, and it, it's been really, uh, um, it's really helped me during this in- environment. You know, because, you know, I'll, I'll do free guitar lessons online, and I'll reach, I mean, we get, you know, uh, big numbers to these. The last one I did is, uh, you know, over 1,200 questions and comments. And then in turn, I have 13 instructional programs that we sell. And so that in turn has really escalated my uh, instructional program sales. You know, and you do something for someone and it comes, you know, the old thing, it comes back to you. But I, I don't have to play live just to make money. And that's something I've I've known about for a long, long time. You know, I, I don't like to put it, you know, one egg in the basket, as they say. Mm. Michael, what's the hardest thing for you about teaching? I'll I give you an example, right? I spoke to Nita Strauss from Alice Cooper about a month ago, and she was just in the offering the Skype lessons. She's actually doing them now. And and I said, is it putting it in your mind how good the, the guy you're, you're teaching is and not going too fast? Would that be one of the main things? No. Um, see, there... See, a lot of people, I, I have nothing against Nita Strauss. I've seen her play. I, I don't know her that well. Maybe we know each other by name. Um, she, a lot of people will take a lesson from her because she's an Alice Cooper. Okay, not taking anything away from her talent, but it's not like she's this person that has this all-encompassing knowledge about a guitar. See, I come from a different place. Um, I come from a place where I can talk about Renaissance counterpoint. Uh, I can talk about, you know, why church modes and, you know, how you listen to scales. And here's what I've learned over the years. I know a lot about music. I mean, if you ask me, what is strato and counterpoint or, or color pointillism? These are all real terms. And, and see, in today's world, what we've done is we've, like, for example, when I learned the melodic minor scale, that is a classical, traditional way of thinking about it, like Handel, like Bach, like Vivaldi, Haydn, Mozart. Now they don't think of it like that. They very rarely use it. It's a jazz minor. In fact, I watched this really famous guitarist the other day say, well, yeah, I'm playing in the key of C major, but instead of hitting an E minor chord, which would be the third, he goes, I'm hitting an E major, and that's modal. I'm like, what? Are you out of your mind? And I'm thinking, that's not modal. It's called a secondary dominant. And, and so now would I criticize that person? I, I'm, I publicly know. But here's what I'm saying. The thing with me is that I take concepts that would, would require some people to do a lot of talking and reduce them to very simplistic exercises and forms and that's the thing that why my instructional programs continue to sell see i learned that studying classical piano they they how do you play fast how do you get your technique well they've been doing it for centuries you know guitar electric guitar hasn't even been around for centuries and so there i use methodology from that into the present and when i when i teach i mean i've taught a lot of famous guitar players um you know dimebag studied my stuff uh, i've worked with i've had, i can't even tell you the people that that have sold millions of albums that have asked me to teach them and i work with one right now that can can make can fill stadiums so but it's to be simple 
and and to get the point across. See, teaching to me is not showing somebody how smart you are. Teaching is is teaching something. And so, you know, if people come to me, I get a lot of people that I don't really do a lot of Skype lessons. I, I don't I, I don't really like the private thing, but I do a few. But usually, it's a one lesson where they want to come to me to get validation or ask me what they're doing right or doing wrong. And, and, and they plus they want to meet me. And, and then a few of these students, like I help people. Uh, I, I have a kid that um, from, from Canada, he went, his hand almost went through a steering wheel in a uh, car accident. Can you imagine the force of mm. that? And, and, and he was a right-handed guitar player. He can't play right-handed anymore. He had surgery, he, but he can play lefty. So I taught him, he came to me, and I've actually taught him how to play left-handed. He's getting really good. <laughs> but, wow. But, yeah. But, but, you know, I think people do this for different reasons, you know? And, like, if I was Anita and, and, you know, you're touring all the time, a lot of people would come to her just to meet her, which is it's great. You know, but but if you you know, but if if, she, if they're going to ask her like detailed music theory questions, I don't think that's her forte, and nor does it matter. But when people come to me, they really want to. They'll ask me about the cage system, or they'll ask, you know, uh, different ideas uh, about. They're usually, you know, they they want to hear my perspective on certain things. Mm. Michael, final question for me, and when I was offered you for the interview, there was a something that Mike Frazier, the engineer, told me, and I said, I, I'll throw it at you and see whether, you know, what, what you think it is, right? So, so Mike worked on a lot of Joe Satriani records. And one of the things Mike said to me was, he, Joe would record something. And, and then Joe would say, no, I can't put that on the record because it's not technically correct or mathematically correct. And the fans will pick up on it and they'll give out to me and and Mike said yeah but Joe it sounds awesome um does that ever happen to you no uh because I think about technically correct but I was in a band called Holland the singer was Tom Holland and we were on Atlantic Records and Tom Worman the big time producer produced us see again I'm going to defer to my education if I've learned anything so what if it's wrong? I know it's wrong immediately, theoretically, but it works. Just playing the blues scale in A over an A major chord is wrong. It's technically and theoretically wrong. But does it sound good? Yes. We did a song called High Life when, when we were in the band Howland, and, and the main chords were A, C, and B major, all major. And we would play a B major and the vocals were E and G over the top, a C major. You're a half step out. Now, at first when I heard it, the, I immediately knew, theoretically, it's incorrect. But I said, man, this sounds badass. Because they're going, <laughs> hi, let, and I'm like, dun, 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 and that last chord is a B while they're singing the sustained C chord over the top. So... That's why it doesn't bother me because now if if you're in the you know like playing A minor to F, so you're in a natural minor and and you hit F sharps, that's just sounds bad. It's theoretically wrong, but it's musically wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like and when I say musically, it's just it it sounds bad. You know, and and ninety nine percent of the people that listen to it will think that's weird sounding. You know, and they don't because I just go by what it sounds. Mm. Sounds like. 
Yeah, it's all subjective anyway. People are either going to like it or they're not going to like it. That's right. And, 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 you know, so, and I like to listen to music as a listener. I can differentiate between that. You listen as a listener, or I'll give you an example, the band Queen. I remember when I was a kid and I heard Killer Queen. That's the first song I'd ever heard. I'm here, Killer Queen. I didn't know what the heck was going on. I'm like, kidding me you know i'm used to you know like a lot simpler music i mean i like progressive music and you know king crimson and yes and, and emerson like and palmer and all those bands and, and but when queen was like a different sound to me and i actually had to put my music theory ears on to understand what they were doing i loved it as a listener but i didn't understand what the heck was going on and then so that's kind of the way i listened to things like do i like it yeah if if I can tell, you know, but then if I don't understand something, then I'll listen to it more theoretically. And, and then that helps me a lot. Mm. When you're playing a live show, Michael, can you spot the musician from a guy like me who's just there to listen to the music? Not really, but, you know, I found like... Uh, Guitar players are so jaded and negative online. You know, I've made jokes about it. You know, like they're just such such jaded people, but, but not really. Um, and, and to me, it doesn't really matter um, as long as they're talking about you. But I, I mean, I've done my last tour in the U.S. was probably my most successful one uh, in a long time. I, you know, I've done a lot of guitar clinics, but we're talking concert. Um, but no, I can't really. But the majority of guys in the audience are players. Not everybody, but the thing about my show is that the way I speak, women like it. They love the stories, and so we made we made we actually advertise, and you can bring your girlfriend or wife too, and they did, and and, and so a good amount of uh, people in the audience now were women that actually they like they love my guitar playing, but it's the stories. It's like this extra added thing that I have that a lot of people don't that that made it interesting to to come to see the show. Uh, well, Michael, give out all the social media sites where people can get in touch with you and where they can buy the record. Yeah. Um, if you see, well, it's Rat Pack Records, so that's where they can get the new album. I'm really proud of it, and it's it's different. I try to make all my solo albums different, and this one I, I really feel it's it's different. It's raw. It's powerful, uh, but it's Rat Pack Records. And then my website, uh, the Chinese gave me a name, Hands Without Shadows. They said I move so fast that I can't catch the shadow. <laughs> so my website is handswithoutshadows.com, and my social media is are Michelangelo Badio official on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. Well, Michael, I'm going to leave you go. It's been a pleasure talking to you again. Thank you. You too. It's great. All right. And have a, have a good rest of the day and stay safe. Thanks. All Bye. right, Michael. Take care. Bye. All right, Metalheads, that will do it for uh, Richie's chat with Michelangelo Badio. And like we talked about before, you definitely want to go up to uh, Rat Pack Records and pick yourself up your own copy of More Machine Than Man. You know, I mentioned the bundles at the beginning of the show, but, you know, if you don't have to get a bundle, they also have the, uh, you know, the just the CD, just the vinyl. Hell, if you want to, you can even get this on cassette from Rat Pack one of the things they've been doing lately is putting all the stuff out on old school cassette and also while you're up there you can treat yourself if you have some back catalog needs from michael 
A lot of that's also available right up there at Rat Pack Records. And, you know, it's available on your other places you normally go to get your album as well. Amazon, all that good stuff. But why not get it right direct from the source because it's coming out this week. And you want to get it freshly baked from the Rat Pack ovens. And just to mention once again, if you want to keep up with Michael, you want to find information, all that good stuff about him, you can go to handswithoutshadows.com which is Michael's own official website. So hope you enjoyed this one, and we've got more great stuff on the way for you through the rest of June as we uh, you know, tick off the weeks until our annual summer break. Can you believe it? It's almost summer break time again. I think the, uh, this 2020 dumpster fire of a year has just been hauling by incredibly fast, and I just, I realized it as I'm putting this show together that, holy crap, there's only, you know, a few weeks until we actually take our little summer break. But we've still got a great talk with Mark Slaughter, all about the first Slaughter album. And we've also got an incredible talk with Michael Gilbert about one of the classic Flotsam and Jetsam albums. And there's some other bits and bobs that are coming out there as well. And who knows what else in the next week or two that Richie might throw down on the table. And some of that stuff might shift until August. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And as usual, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.